2 Corinthians 5. I'll read you the first few verses. We'll actually go from verse 1 all the way down through verse 11. You'll get a sense of where we're going, and then we'll start picking it apart. Are you ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now if you read that, And you go, what in the world is he talking about? That's why we're here. So the proverbial genie in a bottle example, you find a bottle and in there you rub it and out pops a genie and you get one question to ask the genie. Now, I'm not saying I believe in genies and bottles and all that, but you're with me, right, church? You understand the illustration. So you find a genie in a bottle and the genie pops out and says, you have one question. There's two choices. You can only ask one of the two questions. Which question would you ask? And here's your two choices. Question number one, you could ask the genie, what is the meaning of life? Question number two, what happens when you die? Those are the two questions you can ask. Which one would you choose to ask the genie to have a definitive answer? What is the meaning of life or what happens after you and when you die? Well, turns out Vanity Fair, along with 60 Minutes, actually asked people those questions. And it was about a 50-50 split. 45% of people wanted to know what the meaning of life was. And 48% of people wanted to know what happened when they die. Now, there's a missing percentage there, about 7%. I guess 7% didn't care, were too confused by the question. I'm not sure. So it was almost an even split. These are two vastly important questions equally important in the eyes of people, hard to choose. The same poll, they asked people, can science prove whether the afterlife exists? Turns out two out of three Americans do not think that science will ever be able to prove the existence of an afterlife. And three out of 10, so that's two out of three, don't think science, this is not an area for science. Science is never going to be able to prove it. But three out of 10 think that someday it will be proved scientifically. Turns out we have a great fascination, great interest, rightfully so, with what happens after we die. Is there an afterlife? What is it like? Dr. Eben Alexander, a local guy from UVA, he was a neuroscientist, I think a neurologist from UVA. He wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. Has anybody read that? Okay, I read it myself, Proof of Heaven, in which he described his own near-death experience after he contracted, I think it was viral meningitis, As a neurologist, he gets viral meningitis, he's in a coma, parts of his brain are destroyed by the virus, but he lives, he survives, comes out of it, and then describes in this book, Proof of Heaven, what his experience was. He sold 2 million copies, and it was on the bestseller list for 32 weeks. And now a lot of the book is coming under fire, but you can check that out yourself. I actually emailed him. I read the book, and it's not written from a Christian standpoint or anything like that, just describing his experiences. And I wrote him an email asking him, how do you know your experience 
is true? And how do you know your experience is going to be everybody's experience? Because we read a book like that and we go, well, that's his experience. That must be everybody's experience. And it's an assumption. So I asked him, because he's now goes on tour and speaking with the Dalai Lama and all these things. But he boldly titled his book, Proof, that somehow my experience is proof. And that's dangerous. Other books on the subject have captivated Americans. Uh, the book, Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. Todd Burpo, Lynn Vincent, that was number one on USA Today's best-selling book list and was later made into a movie. Anybody read that book? We have an interest in these things. So the question is, and you know, I ask these questions of people. I'm on a plane. I'm at the gym. I'm sitting somewhere. And I say, hey, what do you think happens when you die? And usually people will run as fast as they can because that's the last thing they want to think about when they're at the gym. It's the last thing they want to think about when they're on an airplane. (laughs) It's a great time to ask that question. (laughs) Is that smoke coming out of the engine over there? (laughs) What do you think happens when you die? I mean, I know what you know you're supposed to say because you're Christians. But what do you really believe? Do you believe in an afterlife? If so, what does it look like? And who do you trust to tell you the truth about life after death? There's really only one that's actually gone and come back. People have recorded near-death experience, but there was only one. Well, I guess you could count Lazarus in a sense too, who died, buried, and in the grave. And Jesus calls him forth, but Jesus himself. And he's come back, and he's the one that says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if that's not true, I would have told you. So I don't know who you're going to trust to give you information about what happens when you die, but you better choose carefully because it's a really big question and it's a really important question. The afterlife is probably the greatest mystery for humankind and is a super important question. So as we get into 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, as he served the Lord, as he traveled and ministered and shared this message of Jesus and salvation through Jesus and not through religion and not through the law, He took a beating, didn't he? We read that last week. He took a beating in his body, figuratively and literally speaking. If he was preoccupied with the things of the world, including his body, he would have become very discouraged by that. Our mentality, do everything we can to preserve this body, then he never would have done the things that he did. But he lived a very bold and courageous life, facing all kinds of opposition, facing even physical punishment for what he did, Because he knew some things. He knew, he said, my body's an earthen vessel. It's fragile and it's not very impressive. He knew it had been subject, his earthen vessel had been subject to all kinds of abuses. He shares that, that he had been beat down and persecuted and all those things. But he knew how to beat depression. He knew how to beat discouragement. That's what he says. The last sermon, we talked about how to not lose heart. So despite all that he went through, all that happened to his body, he still knew how to beat depression and ongoing depression, ongoing discouragement. And he said, it's because my target, my focus is not the things that I see. And it's literally the word scopeo, where we get scope, microscope, telescope. It's that thing that takes our vision and focuses on a point. And it literally can be translated target. And so the target of his vision was not the material world. The thing he lived for was not the material world. It was the immaterial. It was the things that are not temporary, but are eternal. And he knew that the harder life was here for him, the more awesome and glorious it would be when he crossed over to the other side and was in heaven. 
I mean, you know that feeling. If I sit here today and I offer you a glass of ice water, you would thank me and you would take it and you would drink it. But now if I make you go and cut the grass and weed the garden and spend all day today out in that garden, out in the hot sun doing yard work, and then I offer you a glass of cold ice water, church, how much better does that taste? It tastes different, doesn't it? It tastes better. It's so refreshing. And I think when Paul talks about a better resurrection, when he talks about these things, the sufferings we go through, working out for us a far greater eternal weight of glory, I think that's what he's thinking. The people that are really going to be just blown away by heaven are the people that are suffering really bad here. The greater the struggle, the greater the victory, Thomas Paine wrote. And I think that there's some people that are just, think about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, the guy all full of sores at the rich man's door and the dogs are taking better care of him than people were. And then he finds himself in this place of comfort in the afterlife. And I'm sure he's going, wow, who would ever want to go back to that place after being here? So Paul knew that. And now as we get into this next section, we see why he had so much confidence about not only his life, but even his life after death. And as we go through, I'm challenge you, as we read these next few verses, as we go through, underline anytime you see the word know or knowing. So as we go through, know or knowing, those are the key words you're going to look for. And we start out right there in verse one. Look at verse one. Paul says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, you know, Paul is speaking figuratively. He's talked about the body as a vessel, an earthen vessel, a clay jar, a clay pot. And now he uses a different illustration, one that's common in the New Testament. Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, uses the same discussion, just calling his body a tent. So Paul says, we know. Now that's interesting to me. That's important to me. He doesn't say, now we think, or we really hope, or we're 90% sure that if our earthly house this tent, this body. You know he's talking about this body. Your body, my body, our bodies. He says, I'm really hopeful. I can't be sure. We can't know for sure. But this is what we think. This is what my brother-in-law told me. This is what the people at the soup kitchen told me. No, he says, we know. So the question you ask yourself is, can you say with this confidence about the afterlife, can you say, I know? Or do you still hold on in your mind? See, this is going to be all about faith. Paul's going to say that. Do you still hold on in your mind? I think, but I'm not sure. Really, I want to believe that, but I don't know if I can trust God's word. That's what you're saying. For we know, Paul says, that if and when it happens that, it's not if, maybe it will, maybe it won't. If and when it happens that our earthly house, which is, I am not my body. We talked about that. You are not your body. I am a spiritual being that lives, that dwells inside, inhabits a body. And it can inhabit different bodies. Not all at once, not here. But that's what Paul's saying. He's contrasting and comparing two different structures. Our body can live in a tent that's temporary or a house that's permanent. So we think of our body as a tent. We think of fragile. We think of something that, well, it lasts a little time, but those tents take a beating, don't they? Anybody like to camp? Anybody like to admit that they like to camp? I mean, how many of you glamp? You know what glamping is? 
glamour camping. If I'm going to camp, you've never heard that before? You got to have your tent and then there's a thousand things you got to have with it all to go. Stay home. It defeats the purpose. You go glamping, but a tent is temporary. And you know, as you use that tent, you travel, you go here, you go there, you load it up, you unload it, you set it up, you take it down. Thing starts to wear out, doesn't it? I mean, a little bungee cord stretch and then they break and the poles get weaker and they break and the fabric gets thin and torn. Welcome to our world, right? You know, I grew up camping. We went, when I was little, we would tent camp. Then my dad got a pop-up trailer and then we got a 18-foot travel trailer, and we never did make it to the RV world, but we stayed at a campground one time, and there was a conference of people that owned what's called a Bluebird Wonder Lodge. It's like a bus, a tour bus, like what a band would use for a tour bus. It's a Bluebird Wonder Lodge. It has central vacuum and heating and air, and I mean, these things cost over $100,000. That's glamping. So you go there and you see people in their seasonal sites. If you've ever been to a campground, you see the seasonal sites in there. People have their trailers and they've got a deck built out front and they're all decorated and they've got lights and awnings and the whole thing, flowers and pathways and it's all groomed. And then you go to the tent sites. And tent campers are a whole different group of people. Tent campers are minimalists. They're like, I just need a roof over my head. I'm not going to spend all day in this thing. I just need a place to sleep because I'm going to be here a couple days, and then we're moving on. Tent people like to stay on the move. They don't like to settle down. The seasonal campers, they want to stay there. They want to get it all set up and hang out there. The tent campers, man, I'm here for a couple days. I'm moving on. I got a lot to see, and I don't plan to stay here permanently. I've never been to a campground where I've seen tent campers digging a footer and laying a masonry foundation for their tent. Do you ever see that? Because tent campers know I ain't wasting my time. I'm not going to put a lot of money into this thing. I'm not going to put a lot of time into this thing because I'm going to be here for two nights and then I'm going to take it down and move on. Well, do you see the illustration that Paul is using? He says, I know that this body is a tent. It's temporary. I'm not here very long. I don't put my stakes in too tight because I know at some point I'm going to break camp and move on. I'm going to take this thing down and I'm going to move on. So it's a really good illustration. And that's what he says here. I know that if this tent is literally, my Bible says destroyed, it literally means to take apart. If this tent is taken apart, and he was familiar with that because he was under a lot of persecution. He knew that his body was not going to last forever. And he didn't say that when this tent is taken apart, I'm just going to set it back up in a new location. He says, I have a building, something that's permanent, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see, we have a fascination with holding on to this body. If you've heard of cryogenics, anybody heard of cryogenics? I found eight people for sure that we know of that when they died, their bodies were put on ice. They were frozen. One of them is not Walt Disney, although people say that. Walt Disney was not put on ice. One of them was a guy named Ted Williams, baseball player. He had in his last will and testament that he wanted his body frozen and all of his children's bodies frozen with the hopes that someday science and technology will be able to revive and restore. We'll have synthetic organs we can replace and keep this body going. And then he would have a reunion with all of his frozen kids. <laughs> I wonder if they called him Pop. <laughs> hey, Pop. <laughs> I just thought of that right now. Uh, <laughs> 
But when you don't know the truth, then you think these thoughts, like somehow I want to hold on to this body. Look, I'm all for, you know, this body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not for abusing my body. See, we abuse our bodies doing selfishly stupid stuff. And we jump out of airplanes and climb cliffs and all kinds of, Paul abused his body in ministry. He took a beating for the Lord, doing the work of the Lord. So he's not bummed out about dismantling his tent. He's not bummed out about what happens to his body. He is actually looking forward to it. As I said, Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, a building, a permanent dwelling place, eternal in the heavens. When we went to Italy a couple of years back, we went to a city called Monselice, and we saw there a castle that was built in the 10th century, in the 900s AD. And I thought, that thing is over a thousand years old. Now, we don't build stuff like that now. But that castle, a thousand years old, built out of stone, it's made permanent, as permanent as something on earth can be. The equation is this temporary dwelling place versus this permanent, eternal building that's made by God. He says, this is why I groan, verse 2, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So Paul speaks of it like clothing, like something we put on. We have our spiritual man on the inside, and right now he's clothed with a tent. But Paul says, I want to be clothed with something that is heavenly, not earthly, not temporary. This goes back to his concentration, not on earthly things, on temporary things. How much time do you spend concentrating on your tent? How much time you spend decorating your tent? People ask me, is it okay to get a tattoo? You want to decorate your tent? Go ahead, but you're just going to break it down someday. It's going to be dissolved into the earth someday. That's where our bodies go. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You want to waste your money on that? Go for it. It's not going to impress God, that's for sure. He's not looking on the outside. But Paul said, look at the words, earnestly desiring to be clothed with something heavenly, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, this is what makes Paul groan. It was not his great desire to extend his temporary life, but his desire was to move on to his eternal one. So we ask each other, I love this, how's it going? You know, you say to each other as you're coming into church, how's it going as you're crossing paths at the coffee shop? How's it going? Now, this is an answer that I've heard. Well, it's a good day, pastor. I'm still above ground. You ever heard anybody say that? I'm still breathing air. It's a good day. Paul would get up in the morning and say, that's a bad day, I'm still above ground. He really felt that. He really thought that. And what he knows is that the afterlife for him is not a place of disembodied spirits. That would be not something to look forward to. He explains what he means, verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Paul, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 4. He says, for we who are in this tent groan. Can anybody say amen to that? How many of you groaned this morning when you got out of bed? Your back is stiff. Knees are stiff. Everything is stiff. Your eyes can't focus. So we are in this tent groan, not because we're in pain, but because we're still in this tent being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, not because I just want to get rid of this body, although that's true, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So I don't know what your picture is of the afterlife. If death meant some disembodied, unemotional, stimulus-free existence, then what good would that be? 
How do you picture the afterlife? Is it annihilation when I close my eyes? Am I just, do I just disappear? Do the lights go out? Do I lose consciousness and that's it? I have no consciousness whatsoever. That's what some people believe. Or am I a disembodied spirit? Do you picture yourself as some kind of bodiless floating spirit? But I would challenge you, even if you picture yourself as a bodiless floating spirit, you still picture yourself in a transparent body, don't you? Because we have a hard time picturing anything else. If you're a disembodied spirit, how will you feel? How will you experience? How will you touch? All these things are not what the Bible says. The Bible says we have a resurrection body. Go back and listen to the YouTube video from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It outlines it in detail. I'm not going to go into that today, but we have to have a body that's suitable for eternity, and this one is not. While we were in Bonaire, we discovered there's tons of hermit crabs in Bonaire. Anybody ever have a hermit crab growing up? Now, I'm not saying we did. I'm not saying we didn't have hermit crab races. It's just something that sometimes people do. We have hermit crabs. We get them all laid out. And okay, we were bored one night. But the interesting thing about hermit crabs is one of them had this broken shell. So what hermit crabs do is they move out of the broken shell and they find a shell. They can grow into a bigger shell and they move and they look really weird. Like you can watch a video about that. They look really scary and grotesque when they come out of their shell and then they zoom over because if they're out of their shell, they're very vulnerable and they climb into some new shell. Well, don't picture that. So there's a difference. Paul says that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So here's my mortal body. When we went through 1 Corinthians 15, I shared about different types of suits, a scuba suit that you need for scuba diving and different kinds of suits for an astronaut suit for going to outer space. And I showed a picture of a guy wearing what I call a heaven suit. And we all laughed at it. Ha ha ha. And then my birthday comes around and we have Wednesday night birthday party for Pastor Steve and young Kate comes forward. So I got you a present. She comes forward with a box and she opens the box and in it is the very suit I showed a picture of and called my heaven suit. And this is it. So I thought, This would be a good day to wear it. I hope it's not too distracting, but the picture is there. What Paul pictures, what Paul pictures is that his mortal life, it's not that he's going to be in some disembodied spirit, but that life swallows up, gulps it down. Now, he who has prepared us or accomplished this for this very thing is God. It's not something we have to do ourselves. It's something that's given to us as a gift. God has prepared us for this very thing. And you know it in your heart. You know it in your heart. You say, this can't be it. God's prepared us for it through Christ's sacrifice, that we're resurrected, we're crucified with Christ, and we're resurrected with Christ. He's prepared us for it that way. But he's also prepared us for it mentally. Because we know that we know that we know that there's got to be more than the 80 years I get on planet Earth in this existence. You know there's got to be more. You long for it. Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, God puts eternity in our hearts. Well, how can I be sure? Well, Paul says, the same God who prepared us for this has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. The fact that you live a spirit-filled life, the fact that you've seen your life transformed, that you've experienced the spirit of God inhabiting your life, that there's been a change, a transformation, and you can't take credit for it yourself. That's not coincidence. That's the mystery of the Spirit of God coming into a person's life and changing it. And that's proof 
that God is going to finish what he started. The word guarantee is the word for earnest money, meaning a deposit you put on something. We have it for our Israel trips. We say we want to put a deposit down because for years people would say, well, we want to go to Israel. I said, well, there's limited space. There's only 45 seats. So they would sign up just to hold the spot, not really sure if they really want to go. So once we started to say, well, if you want to hold a spot, you got to put in a deposit. Then we knew that we were getting people that had thought it through and were really serious about going because they were putting in a deposit that said, my full intention is to go and I want to hold my spot. Well, that's the same as I'm earnest about my desire. An engagement ring, this word Arabon is the same word for engagement ring. Boy meets girl, boy likes girl. Boy wants to make sure no other boys like girl. So boy has to put a ring on the finger to make sure that girl knows boy is serious about relationship. I'm probably causing all kinds of problems now this morning. But, uh, but an engagement ring means I have serious intentions of completing this relationship into a marital state. So that's what God says. And that's what Paul says. The spirit, can I be sure? Can I have confidence? Yes, we can. How do we know? Because God has given us the tangible experience of filling us with the spirit. So now here's the problem in the church. If you've never had the tangible experience of being filled with the spirit, then you may also question, can I really believe God for the afterlife? But for those of us that have had, that understand the new life, the new creation, then we go, yeah, if God has been trustworthy with these things that he said, that I've seen, have you seen God do some stuff? If he said it and it's happened, then I should be able to trust him with the things that he said that haven't yet happened. But that takes faith. And that's what Paul says. Look at this. So we are always confident. Always. I'm always confident. I get cancer. I'm confident. I start to get older. I'm in my 80s. I'm in my 90s. I'm confident that while I'm at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, the word at home versus absent means to be home or to live abroad. So when I'm at home, see, and here's another knowing, right? Knowing that while I'm here, I'm at home in this body, then I'm living abroad from the Lord. We're just studying abroad right now. My real home is heaven, but I'm on this exchange program right now where I'm here for a time to study humanity, to show humanity the truths of God. And then when my program is over, I go home and I look forward to it. Can't wait to get home. So when I'm here, I'm not with the Lord. You understand what he's saying. When I'm in this body, I'm not experiencing the full presence of Jesus Christ. And when I'm experiencing the full presence of Jesus Christ, I won't any longer be in this body. So how can I know that's true? How can I believe that? That's what he says. For we walk, we conduct our lives, we conduct our thought processes by faith, not by sight. Well, pastor, if I could see it, I will believe it. You're not going to see it. No one ever sees it. And there's so many things in our lives where we exercise faith. If you've come to believe in the evolutionary story, abiogenesis, which means that life began from non-life, you have to exercise faith because no one saw it. No one was there. Or if you believe that in the beginning God created, you have to believe it by faith because no one was there. Now, I think our source is better than their source. That's just personal. But to believe that life came from non-life, that's not scientific. You have to believe in miracles to believe that there was non-living material 
and then lightning struck the pond or whatever it was, but then all of a sudden, whoop, life switched on. And I say to people I know from the scientific community that are evolutionary biologists, I say, you really believe that? And you didn't see it. So it takes faith. So, so many of the things, the big things in our lives that we order our lives around will be ordered by faith. Our faith, our trust, God says, I'm going to show you some, but I'm not going to show you all. Blaise Pascal said, in faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. You know enough to know that you know that you know that God is real, that eternity is real. And you want all the information. What does it look like? How does it work? You have some, but God says, there's things that you're not going to see that no one gets to see. And you're just going to have to trust me that that's what happens next. So who else do I trust? Where else do we go for information about these things? Now, Paul, as we go through 2 Corinthians, Paul did have a death or near-death experience that he's going to describe. So hang around till we get to those later chapters. For we conduct our lives by faith, not by sight or by outward appearance. We base our lives on things that we've been told from a source that we are supposed to trust, not based on what I can understand or see or experience myself. American culture is materialistic, not because we like to buy stuff, because we only believe in what we can see or experiment on or touch or handle with our senses. But there's a whole lot of stuff that exists that we can't see or touch or experiment on. Scientists are certain that the majority of the universe is made up of what they call dark matter. Can they see it? They can't see it. But then how do they know it's there? Well, they know it's there. They know it's there by other things. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. How can I be born again? How's that work? Well, I can't explain it to you other than it's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you see its effects. Being born again is kind of like that. Dinosaurs. You ever thought about that? If I came up to you, I said, hey, Stuart, thousands and thousands of years ago, reptiles lived that were as tall as a 20-story building with big tails and giant fangs. And you would say, Steve, that's ridiculous. How can I believe such a thing? Now, whether or not you believed it or not doesn't make it true or not true. It would have been true, even though you didn't have all the data, it still would have been true. And so what God is saying, you may not have all the data. You may not understand it all. You may not be able to touch it, experiment or feel it. But I'm telling you it's true, and you'll find out it's true when you get there, if you choose to trust me. So Paul can say, and he wants us to be able to say, we, he includes himself, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body, to be living abroad from my body, and to be present with the Lord. Now, sometimes people believe in something we call soul sleep. This is what happens when we die. People have lived and died for thousands of years. If my grandmother died a hundred years ago and I died today, we were both believers. Is she in heaven waiting for me? How does this work? Remember, we live in a time continuum here on earth. It's the way we think. It's the way we're wired. We Things have a starting point. They have an ending point. But God dwells in the eternal now. His name is I am. Not I was or I used to be. I am. That is the description of the eternal present tense. It's present tense. God is always living in the present tense. For him, everything is now. But Steve, I don't understand that. Join the club. Well, I don't understand it either. To the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. Everything is now. 
So we look at it, we say, well, we picture time to be passing between when they died and when I die, and that somehow they're in heaven going, man, is Steve going to get here? I mean, is he even coming? I'm not sure. When's he going to get here? When are my kids going to get here? We picture it that way, that maybe I just go to sort of soul sleep and I'm disembodied for a time until I get my new body. But outside of the time continuum, it's everything is now. So I believe the way this will work for us is we're all going to be usher into heaven. It's going to be experienced as at one moment in time. That's how I believe it's going to be experienced because there, when we die, we step out of the time continuum and into eternity. And I think we'll just all of a sudden, God already knows who's glorified. He knows the end from the beginning. He already knows who's there. It's as if we're already there. I mean, is anybody else's mind just blowing a gasket right now? Man, mine is. So because these things are true, Paul says, I'd rather be absent from this body so I can be present with the Lord. There's no lapse time. There's no lag time. Close my eyes in this world. Open my eyes in the face of Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray to feel your presence, to experience your presence. It's all messed up here by sin and by stupidity and all that. But once we open our eyes there, I mean, it's going to be, I just can't imagine it. Therefore, he says, now, how does this affect his life? Verse nine, hang with me. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, whether home or abroad, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all, again, Paul includes himself, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Paul tells us how these things affect the way he lives, how he thinks about his life. Paul says his aim, his aim was eternal things, not temporary. And because of that, his aim, and the word literally means to love honor. You can write that there next to the word aim. It means to love honor. Paul says the honor that I love is not the honor from men. That would go along with a temporary mindset. If you have an eternal mindset, the one whose honor you love is the honor of God. Whose eyes are you performing for? Who are you trying to please and impress? Paul took risks for ministry because he loved the honor of God. It says it right there, whether present or absent, whether I'm in this body or out of this body, it doesn't really matter. My aim, the honor I love, is to be well-pleasing. Now, if you have a King James Version, you might say the word accepted. Does yours say accepted? I think that's a bad translation because that means that you might interpret that as, well, I have to do all these things to be accepted by God. And that's not a good translation because Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are accepted in the beloved. We're accepted because we're in Christ. That's why we're accepted. Not because we've done everything right. Okay, God says, well, I'm the judge. And if you don't make me happy, I'm not letting you in. Sorry. All he wants to know is, have we believed in his son? So the word well-pleasing is better because that describes the relationship between God and Paul. Even though we're not saved by the law, even though we're not saved by rule-keeping, doesn't mean I don't want to please God. I want to do what makes God happy. That's called a relationship. In marriage, you don't need a set of rules. You don't need a set of, here's what you do, here's how it goes, and then every day, like in a robot, you do the things. You're, you go, what can I do to please you? I got to know you, first of all. I got to know my wife so I can know what brings her joy. And then my goal as a husband is to do the things that bring my wife joy. And the wife's goal is to do the things that bring their husband joy. 
that's just good, loving human relationship. And then Paul says, this is how I feel toward God. I don't need a bunch of rules. I don't need laws to follow. I don't need rituals to perform. I want to do what brings God joy. I want to do what pleases him. And there are things that please God, and there are things that do not please God. And unless you know him, you'll never know the difference. The Pharisees did not please God. Jesus gives them the more railing accusation in Matthew 23. He calls them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, because they loved the praises of men. They did everything to be seen by men. And that was the problem that Jesus confronted. They were hypocrites living for the honor of people. So therefore we, Paul says, make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. And Paul knew why. Paul knew that someday he was going to be accountable for the way he lived to God. Now, this is not the white throne judgment of the book of Revelation. The white throne judgment, book of Revelation, names written in or not, the Lamb's book of life. The white throne judgment, everybody's guilty and cast into the lake of fire. That's the judgment for unbelievers. The Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat spoken of here, when we went to Corinth in Greece, the Bema seat, it's a raised platform where the governor would sit and hear cases. And that's where Paul was dragged before Gallio, the proconsul of Corinth. So that's where we were. That's where Paul is speaking of the judgment seat where the governor would hear cases. So he says that God has one of those and that people that are his people, his servants are brought before and how they live, what they did with what they'd been given is then judged. Was it good? Was it bad? Think about the parable of the talents. Different people get different amounts of resources, and then they're responsible to go do something with it. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about building on the foundation that's Jesus Christ. He says, if anyone builds using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, or hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day of judgment will bring it to light, the day of this kind of judgment. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. It's not a matter of salvation or not salvation. It's a matter of in heaven, there are different levels of rewards and different levels of jobs and things like that. And that's based on what you do with what you have here. If you're faithful here, then that will somehow affect your eternity. How? I don't know. But that's what Paul is saying is that he knows that he's going to be accountable for the way he operates in ministry. Now, remember, this whole section is Paul's defending his ministry. He's been accused of some things. He said, look, I don't deal craftily. I'm not being slick with ministry like some other people are. And he says, verse 11, knowing, therefore, there's the third knowing, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. How does Paul operate? How does Paul minister? He says, I know the fear, it's phobos, where we get phobia. I know the fear of the Lord. Anybody have a fear of snakes? Fear of bees or, you know, I know that there's great power there. And I know there's great strength there. And Paul says, I don't want to mess around. I'm going to do ministry, but I'm not going to do it like other people do it. I'm not going to use slick tactics or crafty means or trickery to get people to love me as the minister. Because I know that that would not please God. So therefore, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that's Paul's job. And that's my job this morning. My job is still to persuade you. Not to persuade you. I don't have to use false tactics 
to persuade you to buy something swampland in Florida. I mean, something like that. But I'm persuading you to believe what's true. The pastor's job is always to be persuasive. My job is not to move just your emotion, but to move your will. To go, wow, we should believe that. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, that controls the way Paul lives. And it should also have an impact on the way you and I live. Just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean we cast off any sense of restraint in how we live. I want to live my life to be pleasing to the Lord. Anybody else with me in that? I want to do the things that the Lord loves, and I want to do them the way that he loves them done. We in America, we sometimes we believe the end justifies the means. doesn't matter how we do it as long as it brings the right product. Well, God cares not just about the end. He compares about the means because that's how he's glorified. He puts his treasure in earthen vessels for a reason. That's his means. And to God, the means are really important. He says, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. Isn't that the truth? And I also trust that we are well known in your consciences. So we'll end there for today. Paul says, I know you guys know this about us. We're living in the sight of God, and that produces something good in the sight of man.